Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Mandy Smith, originally from Australia. She's lead pastor of University Christian Church, a campus and neighborhood congregation with its own fair trade cafe in Cincinnati, Ohio. She's also the author of several books, most recently The Vulnerable Pastor, and she's a friend. I give you Mandy Smith. Mandy, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And this week we got interesting text. This is, wait, this yes. is Christ the King Sunday, right? This is the end of the, yes. the election, the election year. So next year, next Sunday, you can freak everybody out by saying happy new year because it's the new <laughs> church year. That's true. And yes. Pe- people look at you weird. I like that. So this first text is pretty interesting, right? It's Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16 and 20 through 24. We've got, um, we've got, this seems like, is this sheep shaming? Cause God's <laughs> going to only fat sheep shaming apparently. Yeah. The fat and, and, and lean the sheep, fat, strong sheep versus the skinny weak sheep. Yeah. So here we have, uh, God talking about him searching him, God searching out, um, for his sheep and seeking them out. Uh, and God's the shepherd, obviously God's people, Israel are, the sheep, and yeah, you have this almost image, right, of like Psalm twenty-three: "I'll make them lie down, um, mm. you know, lie down in green pastures, and this sort of thing." Mm. Um, yeah, so this is a this is Ezekiel's a, a really interesting book. Robert Jensen, the great America's greatest theologian. I mean, this is like he thinks the most. I think he said like for him like the most significant book in the Old Testament or something. And wow. he he said that you know basically he sees the the resurrection of Jesus as. The answer to God's own question posed to the prophet later, uh, else later in the book, you know, can these bones live? Mm. So, what are you going to what are you going to say about Ezekiel Sunday? Well, it's very interesting for me because I have just like a day or two ago flown back from Australia, and given the political climate here, I was so conscious of the fact that I was just so far away from anything that has any power at all, because you know Australia is a huge country; it's similar in size to the United States, not counting. Alaska, but um, it's got, I think the population and the economy are fairly um, comparable to the same of Ohio, which is the state I live in. So um, it's just, and it's just kind of out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. When was the last time that you really heard about anything significant having an influence on the rest of the world from Australia? And so to go to that place and then to come back here and to read this passage just made me think so much about, you know, this. power versus weakness kind of thing that's in this passage. And um, it's made me think a lot about um, how we all are have so much more power today. It, back in those days, it was easy to see those who had power because they were political leaders or wealthy people or religious leaders. And um, it's much more difficult now to tell. I mean, you can be a an unemployed person in your own house making a a blog or a YouTube channel or something and have a huge following without having a lot of money or political sway. And so that's just one of the many examples of the many ways that now 
the um, just harder to pinpoint the category then of the powerful and the weak. You know, I think the distinction is much harder to find. So um, just been thinking a lot about that. And also I remember um, on a recent reading of Revelation really being struck by um, although, which I know is not a passage for this week, but it's it, it affects my reading of these kinds of passages where there's obvious judgment and there's obvious sorting between two different kinds of people. And we have those kinds of things throughout all of Revelation, and it's it's almost like cartoon characters of like the good one and the bad one, you know, the strong one and the weak one. Um, but then when you read it through the lens of all of the letters at the beginning of Revelation, they're much more, you know, they're addressed to Christian people, the seemingly good ones, but with lots of warnings about don't become a bad one. And so I've, I'm often kind of um, interested in the way that in some places scripture is this um, judgment that almost kind of runs across people of the good and the bad within each of us being judged. But then it seems to be a judgment coming from on high and it hits some people on the head and not other people as like, yes, you are entirely the embodiment of goodness or you are the embodiment of badness. So, you know, we're often uncomfortable with that kind of judgment, assuming that some people can be a hundred percent one or the other. Um, but given that this is all coming back around to what I first said, given that power is, um, you know, we all have it, especially in the Western world. We all actually have economic power. Just one vote in this country can have an effect on people outside of this country because of the power of this country. So um, the kind of judgment then that these passages um, describe is much more tricky to know who we're talking about when we're applying it to to people in a very wealthy, powerful country. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's right. I think that that is. Um... I mean, it's interesting, right? Because on some level, this is, you know, the the gospel's only good news in light of the fact that we realize we deserve judgment. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not a love that sort of, uh, it's not sort of love or judgment, but it's, it's through mm. the fact that we realize that the judge was judged in our place, uh, mm. that, that we come. So those themes are just... It, I mean, it, it, it's something that, but I guess the art is talking about judgment the right way mm. or, or, you know, the way that in, in a way that does justice to the whole picture. Right. I think it's interesting in this passage, in light of that, that it says, I will feed them with justice. <laughs> so, you know, feeding somebody is usually um, seen as a good thing, but uh, justice will be fed to all, I guess. And, and these kinds of things really force me to ask, do I truly trust that God is just and that his judgment is truly good? Like he is not just good. He is the the source of, of the whole definition of goodness. And when I'm uncomfortable with um, the idea of judgment, it often is because I think, well, what about that one person who seems like a bad person, but they're actually really good? And, and you know, do I think my mercy is better than his or that I understand better than he do? So he does. So um, it really stretches my ability to imagine true justice from a God who who longs even more than I do for all to be saved and who loves them even more than I do and who knows them even better than I do. And I think these passages also bring me to a place of um, of realizing that those who have been truly oppressed long for justice. And I think sometimes this is a test 
of uh, whether we've truly been oppressed in our life or not, because I think most of us read these kinds of passages and say, well, that's not very nice, you know. But those, I know Wolf talks a lot about this kind of thing, that those who've truly been oppressed long for God to um, respond and and set aside their oppressor. Um, and I think that it, um, that, that longing actually is the choice that keeps those who are oppressed from taking vengeance into their own hands. You know, that that, that longing actually is a way of saying this is, you know, Romans 12 is, is about this too, where it's like, I will repay, I will repay. <laughs> Don't take the vengeance into your own hands, but justice is mine, you know. So these, I think these are difficult passages where they're talking about judgment, but at the same time, um, it, it's humbling, I think, to realize how we come at it from a place of comfort. Yeah, what does Wolf say? I think it's an exclusion and embrace. You know, the non-judgmental mm-hmm. God is the God of the American suburb. Mm-hmm. I, I, was, yeah. I, I was also thinking, you know, Robert Jensen in his Systematic Theology, which is the best American Systematic Theology ever written. And uh, I mean, Robert Jensen, it was amazing, a blessed memory now, but recently died last year. But he said he, in his chat, in one chapter called The Way of God's Identity, he says, you know, there's kind of two ways to look at in the tradition about the cross and the, like, and he says, you know, basically you, one is that, you know, that, that the cross is kind of plan B and the minority kind of view where he looks at in Bard and Franc- certain Franciscans and others is that, and Luther is that it's plan A <laughs> mm. and that God created us in order to redeem us. Mm. Um, and then Jensen says this. Um, so, cause he's saying basically that causes some problems, right? Because it seems as though then God wills the whole thing to go awry. <laughs> Mm, <laughs> he says, yeah. then he, he's, he says this, and then he quotes Ze- Zechariah. So also a mystery of suffering, of an interplay between created regularities and evil, must belong to the plot of God's history with us and to the character of its crisis and fulfillment. One of the last prophets of Israel spoke in God's first person, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. I will refine them as one refines silver. Then I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. Also, such terrible prophecy must somehow become true and good in the last fulfillment, and the identity of God must somehow be told also by it. Mm, That's good, yeah. The only way it makes sense is if we're in a story, and uh, the story just isn't finished yet. Um, And I just read that recently by an author who I wish I could pronounce his name for you. It's Padraig or something like that, but it's one of those Celtic names that has a bunch of consonants that you probably actually don't don't mention when you pronounce it, but um, I th- yeah I think whenever I've thought about well you know if God really knew that we were going to uh, turn away from Him why did He still create us and the only thing I can think of is that He knows the story is worth it and that the the hope and the joy uh, outweighs somehow how much it broke His heart for the story to unfold but. I just have to imagine he's got something in store here that made it worth his while and worth our while. Yeah, and from every, from a ch- from childhood, right? Every fairy tale is, and they live happily, happily ever after. Because somehow a union, a wedding is, is, is in our imagination from an early age, like the, the, the happiest ending. And so mm, that's why, mm. you know, the biblical story ends in a wedding feast. Beautiful. Let's go on to Ephesians. Yes, uh, let's. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 Mm. to 23. 
And here we have Paul talking about how grateful he is for the, for the Ephesians. He's heard of their faith. They get much better marks than the Corinthians. <laughs> <laughs> it's always what people say, like, we want to get back to the New, we're going to be New Testament Christians. Maybe, watch, <laughs> you might become the Corinthians. Uh, I think we already are New Testament Christians. We're messed up, too. Exactly. Uh, but then Paul talks, it's really this beautiful picture of the centrality of Jesus. You know, the Ezekiel passage ends with this notion of this one shepherd, my servant David, you know, the mm-hmm. son of David. And, and so here you have this sort of cosmic p- picture of that shepherd. Mm, beautiful. And just after the conversation we had earlier about power in the Ezekiel passage, this passage is just so refreshing to, to me that here is a, a proper use of power, you know, that, that God himself in the form of Jesus has shown us what it is to to behave well when we have power and um, it makes me want to hand my power over him over to him because he's not going to abuse it simply because he has submitted himself to what is good and um, to serve others and so uh, this interesting contrast for me happens with with the way he displays power as opposed to those fat sheep in the Ezekiel passage and I was reminded of probably you know I was recently part of the she leads gathering which was fantastic and you should check that out if you're interested Miss Yale Alliance put it on um, just last month and they have recordings of it available on their website missyoalliance.org um, and w- I think one of the key moments for me was when Todd Hunter said people with power abuse power every day unless they're forming themselves in Christ um, and I mean that's just applicable in so many places but I see that in this passage here that um, we see the way that um, God as it says God put his power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, which gives me so much hope that, you know, the Roman Empire seemed so powerful at the time, and where is it now, you know, and what what is our Roman Empire now? What are the, the names and the dominions and the authorities that seem to be so overwhelming for us um, economically, politically, even in religious realms, whatever, that um, that God has raised Christ from the dead to be above all of those rules and authorities and powers and dominions for this age and the age to come, which just puts everything in perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reading a, a novel right now. My wife recommended She just read it, and it's called The Power, and it's like a sort of sci-fi kind of in the near future, women, it's like women become like the X-Men, like certain women and certain sort of gender fluid males, but mostly mm. women get this electromagnetic power and they can do all these things. They can manipulate reality. They can shock people they, and they become more powerful than the men. And then the women become, uh, uh start behaving really badly. <laughs> and mm. it's, it's written by a woman and kind of her thesis in the, in the novel is kind of, you can see that in her thesis that it's not the gender that, which, which makes people awful. It's power. And so when you, when power becomes so d- d- differentiated in, in an unbalanced way that people just abuse it. And, and, yes. and, and, and so it's a really creative novel and really yeah, well I want to read that. That sounds amazing. It's interesting because in a culture where there is some level of longing for justice, um, the oppressed person actually, or the marginalized person actually can have a power and abuse power when it comes to speaking out from that place and and calling people out. And I've had a couple of experiences lately um, that have been 
kind of sobering. I've almost felt this weight suddenly come over me when I've suddenly realized that I have power um, hmm. in, an, in a situation where I don't seem to have power on the gender kind of spectrum. And for example, um, I have several times when men want to kind of repent <laughs> or confess uh, in light of the whole um, the gender stuff happening in the church. And um, sometimes, several times I've had a white man come to me and just say, I don't know what to do with my privilege. What can I do? I was mm. born a white man. I don't know what to do. And I could totally abuse that situation. And it's a temptation to say, your privilege is not my problem, brother. You know, like, <laughs> just get over it. You right, know? right, or, right. Or, or, you know, um, and to to receive that and to say words of healing and grace in that moment, I there is there is such a temptation. And um, and I think it's a power. I feel. I, Recently, I just named it like, whoa, what is that feeling? <laughs> it's so foreign to me. Oh, I think that's called power. Um, and then a moment recently too where I was invited to be a woman on a board of men because they they realized they didn't have um, a balance there. And um, we were planning an event and I put out an idea and there was just silence in the room. And I could tell these were all men who are the kind of men who specifically invited me because I'm a woman and they want to be in listening to other perspectives, but they didn't agree with me. And they were, they were feeling this, like, are we allowed to say no to her? <laughs> you know, which I again could have totally abused. Um, and I actually, like, there was this moment hmm. of temptation where I was like, I could get my way here. Hmm. You know, I could just totally stomp all over this. And to specifically say to them, you know, you guys can push back, right? Like, hmm. it's not really equality. It's not really uh, fair, any more fair if now I get my way because I haven't had my way in the past, you know. Hmm. So um, it's a humbling moment to actually name that and to get out of the habit, actually, of of um, the powerlessness that can be something we get so used to. Yeah, and that's beautiful. You know, one of the also thing, one other thing that I think is interesting here before we move on to the gospel reading is it can be tough to be a pastor these days. People like church, most Christian traditions in North America are in some form of decline, at least number numbers mm. wise and resource wise. And church life can just be hard, whether, well, whatever side of the pew or pulpit you're on. But there's this great line at the end he, that Christ, you know, God has put all things under his Christ's feet and made him the head over all things. For the church, mm. head head over all things, over quarks, over waterfalls, over elephants, over uh, <laughs> hurricanes, you know, over all these things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So anytime, right, the church is always both an organism and an organization. Mm. And Tim Keller says the pastor's job to make sure to defend the organism's Mm. interests over the organization at all times. Mm. So that's this beautiful thing in the in the midst of the ordinariness that there's something that the whole cosmos and Christ's headship over is for this, you know, sort of uh, this island of misfit toys kind of. Mm. I like who, that. When my time comes around, lay me gently in the cold dark No grave can hold my body down. So on to the gospel reading. We have this is a pretty familiar text, I think, for many people who have any familiarity with the Bible. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And sometimes you want to walk around and just say goat, sheep, sheep, goat. No, it's like mm -hmm. duck, it's like duck, duck, goose. You know, sheep, yeah. sheep, goat. Yeah, but this is sort of a, like I don't know. This could be sometimes I think it's 
it's hardest to preach the gospel from the gospels. Mm. And by that, I mean a message that's a message of redemption, hope, and good news mm. for sinners. Mm. Um, and this is a tr- tricky passage, right? Because <laughs> you have this sort of, this group of people and there's this, this separation, right? And, and, and people on one side, the left hand, I guess, get, get kind of sent away and, and they're not quite sure why. I mean, we, you know, what did we, and then the people that are the sheep, the ones that are remain and are admitted, you know, into the fellowship of the shepherd, they seem to kind of not know why. Mm, <laughs> mm. And it seems like there's a big surprise and then yeah. a, a finality. Yeah. It's interesting. And the one in the Old Testament is, the selection happens because of how they treated one another. The uh, sheep, where is it here? It's like you prodded the others with your hooves and you drove them out or something. You pushed with flank and shoulder and butted the weak animals with your horns until you scattered them far and wide. That's the judgment on the fat sheep, the powerful sheep. But here it's about how they treat him, which is interesting. But it's, I guess it's an easier choice when you're picking sheep from goats as opposed to skinny sheep from fat sheep. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, that, that um, there's an article, and I'll link to this in the show notes, in Christianity Today, uh, this is two years ago, I think, 2015, by Andy Horvath, who, it's called What You Probably Don't Know About the Least of These. And he basically argues that for most of church history, and he's got a plain reading, this is not the poor. And he's like, I'm not saying that the Bible, the Bible doesn't consistently call us to, you know, uh, to love, and, and, and in a special and prioritized way, the, the suffering and the vulnerable. But he's like here. He actually thinks it's the church hmm. that that it's and it's inter- which he and he has a lot of extra exegetical arguments for these. One of which he he tends to not call people. Um, he talks about sort of his Jewish opponents. He doesn't call them brothers. Like he doesn't call like there's this clear sense in which this is in in the fellowship of faith kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and so, like, so he thinks that you know maybe this is also t- thought about like when people kind of desert suffering members of the church, you know, when when, mm. when the church is persecuted, people sort of distance themselves from the church. And you even see this in a different way today. Like, well, I'm I, I'm okay with Jesus, but not his people. I mean, mm. I'm kind of, you know, Jesus is good enough for me, but his people aren't. And so that, so it's an interesting argument that this is not in general, just how you treat mm. suffering people, but it's actually, uh, which, which makes sense too, right? If, if, if as Paul says, the church is the fullness of him, his body. Mm, so mm. then what you did to them, you did to me. Hmm. Yeah. I am often astounded in the letters, especially in the New Testament, how often it says, take care of one another. And it's very much talking about those within the fellowship. And I'm noticing here that for the first time that it says, um, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So that's interesting. I have to think more about that because I've not, I've thought about that in the, the context of the epistles, but not so much in this story. Um, yeah, I, I do love um, David Fitch's Faithful Presence book, which talks about various practices of the church and being with the least of these is one of them. Um, and for me, I think that's probably one of the most key recent books for the American church that is teaching us how to devote ourselves to these practices. It's much more satisfying to define ourselves by a mission statement or a doctrinal statement. And those things are fine for the for the purposes they're intended for, but um, to define ourselves by these kinds of behaviors of welcoming strangers and uh, visiting the sick and those in prison and giving clothing and these kinds of very humbling processes that really stretch our faith and really teach us to long 
for the Lord and really reveal the Lord to those around us. Um, I've had a few people recently that I've really felt called to, um, you know, I felt like the Lord has actually asked me to love these people who I personally would not choose to step into the situation because it just seems so, so beyond my ability to make a difference to it. You know, people with serious mental health issues and people in homelessness and, um, it's nice to be, it's easy to be nice to them and keep on moving, you know, but to really let yourself love them and listen to the promptings of the Lord and, and his longing for them and to do what small thing you can. It's, it's incredibly humbling. And, um, I was coming out of a visit at a hospital with somebody who the Lord keeps asking me to pray for them to be healed. And I just can't, my, it really stretches my imagination yes. when I'm praying those prayers. And this passage, um, was on the wall of the hospital as I was coming out, feeling like such a failure and feeling so unable to fix this person. And um, just this this line was on the wall on a sculpture on the hospital that was saying, you know, as you visited me, you know, yeah. and, uh, to just visit. It doesn't say, and you fixed me or, and you resolved all my problems, but that to bring the presence of Jesus and to both somehow be Jesus in that place and also to see Jesus in them. Um, is just an amazing experience that I think stretches our faith and also helps us reveal him in beautiful ways. Yeah. Yeah. Not abandoning them. Um, mm. It's interesting. I've been reading Robert Capon's stuff as I've been going through the, these parables and Capon makes a really interesting point. And all, and a lot of these parables, which he calls like the parables of judgment, there are not two kinds of people, right? Everyone's in like the sheep and the goats are both in the pen, in the flock, the, 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 the wise and foolish virgins, are, are, you know, mm. means are all invited to the wedding. You know, mm. the, the, the parable of talents, they're all in the employee. There's not kind of ins and outs. And he says, you know, the, but there is this sort of response in these things, which is determined. And he says this, which I think is beautiful. Um, the response called for all through the parables is faith, not good works. Therefore, the response called for here at the end is the same, as the oil in the wise virgin's vessels should not be interpreted as courts and courts of ethical integrity. So the kindness of the blessed to the least of the king's brethren should not be taken as drums full of industrial strength good deeds. Indeed, mm. the most notable feature of the parable of the great judgment is that the good works of the blessed are not presented as such. The king says not that the sheep have compiled a splendid moral record, but that they had a relationship with himself. Amen, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Or to put it even more precisely, they are praised at his final parousia for what they did in his parousia throughout their lives, namely for trusting mm. him to have had a relationship with them all along. Beautiful. Mandy, thanks for talking with me about these it's texts. Been, it's always good. Scott, glad to join you. I'll have you back soon. Love it. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Mandy for coming on the podcast, and check out the information about She Leads over at Missio Alliance. Dot org. And thanks to you again for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.